0: Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics. And we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. There's obviously a lot of attention at the moment regarding the potential of using psychedelic substances to help with the healing of trauma. But can these medicines also be effective in healing intergenerational trauma, trauma that is passed from one generation to another? And if that's possible, then how can the personal healing that we experience with psychedelics potentially benefit our families and our greater communities? These are just some of the questions I explore in this episode with Susan Bolio, an Anishinaabe citizen of the Red Lake Nation, whose own personal healing experience with psychedelics is now positively affecting her immediate family and her larger indigenous community. In this episode, we dive into some very interesting questions, including can trauma pass intergenerationally through epigenetics or other factors? And might we all be carrying around and resolve trauma from our ancestors, perhaps something that is affecting us in the present day without even knowing it? How might psychedelics play a role in the healing of trauma inherited from the residential school system and other atrocities inflicted on indigenous people? What are the unique challenges that indigenous people face as they work to heal trauma with psychedelics while also honoring their cultural lineage and treasured traditions of the past? And what can we learn from indigenous cultures that might hold the key to bringing together disparate groups within the psychedelic sector so that we can better work together and move the psychedelic renaissance forward. This is without a doubt, one of the most interesting discussions I've had regarding the potential of psychedelics. So I'm especially excited to introduce you to my guest and examine the potential of psychedelic substances to help heal trauma across generations and across communities. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's episode is Psychedelics for Healing, Yourself, Your Family, Your Community, Lessons in Remembering and Resilience from Indigenous People. And I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to my very special guest today, Susan Bolio. Susan is a citizen of the Red Lake Nation and has been working with Indigenous communities for over 16 years in a variety of capacities, including project development, training, and facilitation. Her primary work includes helping organizations and individuals understand the impact of trauma at the individual, family, and collective levels, as well as facilitating processes for reconnecting to the mind, body, heart, and spirit to improve health and well-being. Susan is a doctoral student at the University of Minnesota, focusing her research on psychedelic use and healing for indigenous populations. She's also the mother of four and resides with her family in central Minnesota. And Susan, you and I first got connected through the Research to Reality Conference. I heard you speak on a panel and was just so touched by the things that you shared And what really struck me as you were talking about the healing work that you do professionally and also the healing experiences you've had personally, what really struck me is the level of knowing that you have around healing. And it's not that intellectual knowing, it's that embodied level of knowing that is so important. So when I heard you speak, I was thinking to myself, I'd love to have her on the podcast and I'm so thrilled you agreed to be here. So thank you very much for coming today.
1: Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much, Sonia, for having me. I
0: actually just saw a quote, I thought I would share this because to me, it actually sums up a lot of the work that you've done. This is from Mark Nepo. He is the author of the book of awakening. And this quote says, when we heal ourselves, we heal the world for as the body is only as healthy as its individual cells. The world is only as healthy as its individual souls. And I know through the conversations we've had that you've had a lot of experience of healing personally, and then seeing that healing and transformation show up in your own family, your immediate family. And now that's extending out through your community. So we're going to get into a lot of that today through the conversation. But would you mind just sharing a little bit more about your background? Because I know for a long time, you were very involved with education program through extension with the University of Minnesota.
1: Yeah, and I'm actually going to step back just a little bit even before that. It was eight years ago this spring when I first learned about adverse childhood experiences. I honestly don't even remember how it came across my radar. But at the time, I was working for the University of Minnesota Extension in youth development. We had a 4-H programs running across different tribal nations in the state. And we had a mentoring program in Fond du Lac, and I was always looking for new information and things that we could train the mentors on. And so I heard about ACEs. I thought, I'll go check this out, see what it's about. You never know what door is going to be the door that opens, that completely shifts everything in your life. And this really was the door for me. So when I went to the training, it helped me to understand how adversity in childhood and the connection to historical trauma, how that all connects. And light bulbs are going off thinking about my own personal experience and the high ACE score that I have, thinking about my family and the ramifications I had seen of this trauma, but also in the tribal communities that I was working with. And so I wanted to get trained in ACEs because at the time our tribal communities were talking about historical trauma, but we weren't connecting it to how these adverse childhood experience patterns show up in our communities today. Sometimes you hear people say things like, well, that was a long time ago. How come you all don't get over it? So really this lack of understanding of how trauma has these ongoing ripple out effects throughout one's life and also across generations. So I got trained in the ACE interface and that really began my journey But the the catalyst was my experience sitting with ayahuasca in Ecuador about a year and a half after that. So that really began to shift a lot of the head knowing that I had gained about ACEs and trauma and historical trauma into a much more embodied understanding. And I began to recognize how these pieces fit together even more powerfully. And at that time, I transitioned to the University of Minnesota Extension, and they had a grant through SAMHSA to work on the opioid issue. And I remember when I came in, and I did the interview, I said, I understand that this is a problem in our communities, but unless we can talk about why, unless we can get to why this is a problem, I'm not interested in dealing with the symptoms to me The the opioid issue, the substance use issues, those are symptoms of the unresolved trauma. So, if I can do trainings on helping our communities understand the connection between historical trauma, epigenetics, adverse childhood experiences, and then really helping to facilitate processes around resilience, I'm all in. But if not, then, you know, I don't have any interest in this. Yes, absolutely. So, it's so interesting how life sort of puts things into our path at just the right times. I was always trying to figure out when people have high A scores that go unresolved, they tend to have all of these physical health problems, mental health problems, social problems. Why is that? What's connected to those physical problems? And so I started digging more into that, which led me to the mind-body practices. And I got trained as a facilitator through the Center for Mind-Body Medicine to really begin to look at and understand the stress response in the body and practices that we can use to reintegrate and reconnect to our mind, our body, our spirit, our heart, just really have the opportunity and extension to facilitate mind-body groups within our indigenous communities and specifically folks in recovery and seeing how impactful and powerful that was for them to have opportunities and practices to begin doing that, starting with a really simple practice such as breath.
0: Brilliant. And, you know, you mentioned trauma in your community and certainly psychedelics is showing enormous promise for helping people heal their own personal trauma. But this idea of intergenerational trauma, I think is being understood in a much more profound way. The first time I really came across that concept, I was actually in a program in Los Angeles. I'll give a shout out to the University of Santa Monica, doctors, Ron and Mary Holnick. They have a phenomenal program that I had a chance to take part in. And one of the things we did in that program was something called a genogram. And it's very much like going back and mapping out your family tree. But then you also look at the conditions that were passed down generation to generation. So we looked at things like substance abuse and mental health disorders, and whether or not people stayed married or got divorced or, you know, other sort of family dynamics. And Susan, I couldn't believe this. As I looked at the family tree and its completion, you know, I could see how these patterns were passed down generation to generation. In fact, there's one generation that was almost the exact mirror image in terms of like the number of children, Mm. the, the types of children, the birth order and the conditions that were passed down. So for me personally, that was, I think, the first time I really could appreciate this idea of trauma passing generationally. And I know people are working to understand how intergenerational trauma works. Is it passed down through behavior patterns, how one generation relates to the other? Is it something that happens at a deeper level like epigenetics? But it's certainly a common experience. And it's happened in a lot of different communities. Certainly, I'm sure your community, the indigenous community, is one that has suffered the most. And I've heard you describe the origins of this in a very interesting way when you talked about the indigenous community and how it was impacted by colonization hundreds of years ago. I think you described it as a clash of two paradigms. That was really interesting. Would you please tell us more about that?
1: I wish I could remember the name of the indigenous researcher who did a presentation on this for the University of Minnesota. It even helped me to understand this collision, right? So the worldview that we had pre-contact was very much about understanding the interconnected nature of everything think of like a circle and within that circle all of the sentient beings are within that circle and they are all connected they're interdependent there's reciprocity that happens there's relationships all throughout there and they, even though they might not be direct relationships indirectly they impact one another because of that interconnected nature There was no hierarchy, unlike those who came over from Europe, who for generations really had lived under patriarchy, you know, where men were over women, where landowners were over non-landovers, wealthy over non-wealthy, monarchs over everyday people, right? So there were were all sorts of hierarchies, even within the species of humanity, much less how then we as humans interacted with other sentient beings and species on this planet. So the picture of that would be the pyramid, where you have, you know, white, wealthy men at the top, landowning men at the top, and then sort of everyone else falling underneath that somewhere in this hierarchy. So when they came over, they really had a hard time understanding the ways that we moved and navigated here, where men were not over women, adults were not over children, elders were highly revered. We had direct relationships with our non-human plant and animal relatives before there was any sort of harvesting that was done. There were prayers that were offered. There was, in as Anishinaabe people, a sema or tobacco that was offered. And, and the way that it was explained to me is before we would go out and fish on the lake or harvest wild rice or hunt a deer or pick medicines, whatever it was, we would say a prayer with our sema, we would let those beings, those sentient beings with their own spirit and agency know why we needed them for survival, what we were going to use them for. And we'd ask for them to give their lives so that we could sustain ourselves. So there was this understanding, we don't just go out blindly and take the lives of others. And we didn't waste anything because we recognized the sacrifice that those beings had given so that we could survive. So that's a very different way of being than coming over and seeing, quote unquote, resources in the timber, in the furs, in the land for growing food, right? So seeing those as resources versus relationships. And so I think if I could boil it down into a nutshell, that really is the difference in hierarchy and the ways that we interacted was relationships as Indigenous people versus that sort of resource-based and what can this being or what can this human do for me versus how are we connected and how are we giving as much as we take, that there's this reciprocity in that. So that really was the clash of the two worldviews between the Indigenous peoples here in the United States and those that came over. One of the other things that I want to connect this to is As I've learned more about trauma and listen to folks like Thomas Hubel and Gabor Matei talk about trauma and how trauma is a separation or at, at a minimum, a sense of separation, because the reality is that everything is connected, whether we feel it or know it or not, it is connected. But when we don't feel that connection, there's a sense of separation. And in that sense of separation, then we no longer have those strong relational ties, whether it be to ourselves, where we're disconnected from our body, we're disconnected from our emotions, maybe we're disconnected from our thoughts, disconnected from our spirit, right? So these trauma experiences can lead us to shut down from or disconnect from those parts of ourselves, which if we're then not connected to that ourselves, we can't attune and tune into and connect With others, whether it be other humans or other sentient beings on this planet. So, my understanding has come to be that that unresolved trauma is thousands and thousands of years old. And at the root of it is a sense of separation, which creates othering, it creates hierarchy, it creates division. There's a great book I read, and it's a book by Paulo Freire, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he talks about how when a group of people is oppressed, if they do not heal that, if they don't work through that, They end up becoming oppressors themselves if they get into a position of power. And so you think about all of the atrocities that had happened over in Europe to women, to different religious groups, to people who weren't wealthy landowners, the oppressions that they experienced, and then they come over here and they become the oppressors.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you share all that, because I think most of us have some sense of the history. And it's so much more than just settlers coming to a new world and looking to settle and establish their own culture and potentially compete for resources. There's this, like you said, clash of these two very different paradigms. Very different worldviews. And I can imagine for the colonizers, whether this was conscious or not, like how threatening your community's way of being would have been to them because so much of their influence and ability to survive in their own culture mm-hmm. really came down to being able to dominate over yeah. each other or other people or other circumstances. And, you know, what really strikes me too is the incredible opportunity that was lost. If only the settlers had had the capacity to appreciate, you know, some of the wisdom of your people and and perhaps to be curious enough to adopt some of that into their own culture. Like, I wonder where we would be today as a people, all of us, right? But to me, it really shows how much perhaps unconscious desire there was to, like you said, assimilate the indigenous communities into the white communities And over time, that showed up in more and more pronounced ways. Mm -hmm. And I think most people are familiar with the residential school history. But would you speak to that, too? Because I'm sure in your own community, there have been traces of trauma that survived intergenerationally because of that experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And I even suggest that some of the biggest ripples that we still feel in our community are tied to the boarding schools, to the residential schools, so what we know about the boarding schools in the United States anyway, it was both the federal government and the churches that were working together to create these boarding schools for indigenous children. And the goal was assimilation because they hadn't been successful at assimilating the adults. And so they took the kids, some as young as three and four years old. And so when I think about it, I'm a mother of four and my youngest is four years old right now. I cannot imagine the heartbreak, the absolute trauma of that separation from a parent's perspective, but also as the child, like not understanding what's happening. I've heard stories of boarding school survivors who thought that their parents had left them. Their parents didn't want them anymore. They didn't understand what was happening, that they were being forcibly removed. I mean, there were parents who were shot and killed if they did not send their children to boarding school. There were food, annuities, payments that tribes were getting or Native people were getting per the the treaties that would be withheld if they didn't send their children, right? There was a lot of coercion that happened and children were forced to go. And so once they arrived, there were all sorts of atrocities. And for those who are familiar with the adverse childhood experiences, so many of the traumas in the ACEs were traumas that were in the boarding school's experience. So physical abuse, sexual abuse physical neglect. A lot of the schools were on subsistence diets that, you know, funding wasn't coming in. And so they were just barely surviving. The children were working in the school. They did learn some reading, math, you know, basic stuff like that. But they also were tending the gardens and doing the laundry and doing the cleaning and all of these things. So barely getting enough food. And then they're also having to work really hard. Then because the purpose of boarding schools was assimilation, Any child that tried to speak their language, that tried to play any traditional games, that tried to do anything connected to their culture, that was harshly punished, so severely punished that I've heard, again, just heartbreaking stories of boarding school survivors who because of the association that was made between speaking the language and the pain that they would experience when they had children or grandchildren, they were afraid to speak the language to them because they didn't want them to be harmed. So you have all sorts of traditions and values and language, which language is so important. It shapes how we perceive our world, how we perceive our relationships in the world, right? So language goes beyond just words, it actually creates the construct in which we live. And so language is really powerful. So language, tradition, values, those things were not passed down. And in fact, children were heavily shamed for having those beliefs. So I think that's another important piece of it. There's been some really wonderful research that's come out from folks like Brene Brown, looking at shame and guilt and the difference between the two. And so when you are heavily shaming Children during their most formative years, when the brain is really wiring in and these patterns that foundations are being laid, when you're shaming them for believing the things that they were taught when they were in their home communities, when you shame them for the practices, there became this deep sense of there's something wrong with us you know, that that we're not good, there's something wrong with us. And even the churches really promoted this belief in our communities that our practices were evil, that they were connected to Satan. And then when they got out of the boarding schools, they no longer spoke their language. So if they were able to go home again, They couldn't communicate with their families anymore, but if they went into town, didn't pass as a white person. So like, where did they belong? Where did they fit in? You know, and that sense of belonging is so critical in so many ways for our sense of well-being. And that was something that a lot of the children coming out of the boarding schools didn't have that sense of belonging. So in addition to that lack of belonging, you have all of that trauma that they experienced. They started using substances or other things to cope. And so that became a way to numb those feelings. And a lot of the practices that we had in our communities to help with healing were not easily accessible in our communities anymore, which made that healing even more difficult.
0: Yeah, I really can hear that. This whole process of assimilation, like how traumatizing it was to your culture on so many levels. It's almost impossible to fathom what it would be like to have an exterior group come in and basically make your entire way of living and being wrong and judged. And bit by bit, your culture is being chipped away and families are separated and children who should have been raised in a culture that was more nurturing and loving and supportive, you know, are now strangers, even to themselves. And like you said, as all of this is happening, traditional ways of dealing with that level of hardship are also stripped away. So here's this culture that's been dissected and traumatized and left to deal with all of the ramifications of that. And perhaps one of the only ways to do so is to check out through alcohol or drug abuse, which is totally understandable. I remember you talking too about how we can embody all that and not even be aware of it. To me, that's the most fascinating thing about doing this healing work is as we peel off the layers realize how much trauma many of us carry and how a lot of it isn't necessarily even our own, that it is in some ways inherited through generational experiences. And would you mind sharing a little bit about your ayahuasca experience? Because as I recall... That was something that you were drawn into, not necessarily for your own healing mm. originally, but you discovered some very interesting things about yourself and the trauma that you were carrying.
1: Yeah. So my first experience with ayahuasca, my husband and I, we were separated at the time. He struggled with opioid addiction for about eight years and our relationship was really challenging, but somehow he had heard about ayahuasca and how it might be helpful for addiction and recovery. And so I thought, well, I'll go down there. I'll, you know, quote unquote, support him. You know, at at this point I had been in counseling on and off through the years. And for the most part, I felt okay. And what I mean by okay is most of my childhood and teenage years, I struggled with depression. I mean, really, really, really deep depression to the point of two suicide attempts. And so it was a really, really dark time in my life. And I wasn't experiencing that. So we sort of compare our experience to well, it's not it's not bad, because I'm not in this place where I feel despair all the time. So you know, I've come a long way. And in the medicine, I became very aware very quickly of patterns that I was carrying or energy that I was holding helped me understand like I had a lot of my own healing to do as well. And that really became the catalyst for this healing journey that I'm on now. And I've had the opportunity to sit with ayahuasca multiple times since then. And in fact, the most recent journey I had attended an indigenous meditation retreat in New Mexico at the end of August. And then on the tail end of that, like the next weekend, I was able to sit with ayahuasca. And at the meditation retreat, even though I've been doing this healing work for like six, six and a half years, all of a sudden I was feeling all of this numbness. And I was like, what, what is this? And I sensed into it underneath, I could feel just ton of terror and rage never in my life seen anybody deal with rage in a healthy way. So I was like, what do I do with all of this energy that I know is stored in my body? I'm feeling it now. I'm sensing it. Like, what do I do with this? And so of course that next weekend I was able to sit with the medicine. That's the intention I went into was help me understand how do I navigate? How do I transform some of this energy? What do I need to do? And so the medicine Gave me a whole night to practice tapping into that, using my breath and my heart to be able to transform that energy and then sending it back out. But the interesting thing was, in that journey, as I started out thinking it was just mine, the medicine showed me really quickly, mm-hmm. oh, this is also your families. Oh, this is your communities. This is actually the world. This trauma is so interconnected. It became impossible to tease apart what was mine you know, quote unquote, mine versus what was the world, or how that energy gets passed down. And so that reaffirms the work that I'm doing and why it's so important, because no one of us can do all of this. No one of us carries the burden of all of this individually, because we are connected and our traumas and our experiences are connected. And so as I've come from that journey, then really sensing more into and trying to be more aware of what are the opportunities that I can help bring into our communities for this healing because as you mentioned you know many of our ceremonies they were no longer available to most of us a lot of them had to go underground because if our communities tried to do the ceremonies The medicine people were imprisoned or they were killed. The ceremonies were made illegal until 1978. So that, again, speaks to that piece of a lot of times we think historical trauma happened a long time ago, and yet 1978 was one year before I was born. So it wasn't that long ago that these policies and practices against our Indigenous worldviews, Indigenous ways of being, we didn't have those practices easily accessible in our communities.
0: Wow, it's fascinating. And I'm curious with your own experience of healing that trauma within yourself, how did that show up within your immediate family? I think I've heard you tell a story about your daughter playing with Legos one time and how you found yourself reacting differently as a result of that work. And I'm sure there's other examples too.
1: Yeah, that really has been the beauty of this healing journey that psychedelics has shown me. And also as you're integrating from the psychedelic journeys. And I do a lot of other practice, you know, body scans, body practices, breath practices, meditation practices, and all of those help with that integration piece and process with, with the psychedelic journeys. But so the story related to my daughter with the Legos. So it was summertime. I brought her with me to work and work was a two hour drive from home because I live in Brainerd and I was working in the white earth community at the time, one of the communities that I worked in. And so she brought Legos and on the way home, she was trying to build this Lego house in her lap and she didn't have anything flat to put it on. And so as she's trying to put these pieces together, they're falling apart and she's getting more and more frustrated. And and I'm a really sensitive person when it comes to energy and, and picking up energies of others. Some of that might just be innate, who I am. Some of it also is tied to the experiences I had as a child where I had to be really attuned to the energies around me for my own survival, right? And so I start to feel this like spinning in my chest. And I'm, you know, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. And I look in the rearview mirror, and I can see her back there getting frustrated. And I can see what's happening. This was before I really started doing mind-body practices myself, but I'd heard about breathing and how breathing can be helpful. So I was like, oh, Sophia, let's let's take some deep breaths. So I'm trying to show her how to take these deep breaths. And she's literally back there almost hyperventilating, We're not taking the breaths into her belly, really into her chest really fast. And I can feel energetically like this is not helping at all. So I was like, that's okay. We don't have to do that. you know. And I'm racking my brain trying to figure out what can I do? How can I help her? But the other piece that I'm aware of now, and I wasn't necessarily aware of then, I was thinking, how do I stop what's happening inside of me? Because I was so overwhelmed by what was happening inside of her. Two options appeared before me. I could go off on her. I could be like, Sophia, just knock it off. It's not a big, you know, which is part of what I experienced growing up, right? This like belittling of what's happening and it's not a big deal and shut it down. Or I could check out. I could dissociate. Because I knew I couldn't be with what was coming up in me. I was too overwhelmed. And in that moment, I chose to check out. And I still think it was the better option. I was so aware in that moment that I was still sending her the same message. That she needed to shut down her big emotions. That her big emotions were too big for me. And if she wanted to stay in connection and relationship with me, she had to shut that down. And so that awareness of like the message I was sending without saying a word slapped me in the face. And it was like, I need to learn how to sit with my big emotions if I want to be able to do this for my kids. And it's still very much a practice. I'm so much better than I was. But even now when they're fighting or the 4 year olds throwing a tantrum about something, I'm so much more aware now of what's happening in my physical body, which is a really important piece of this healing journey, because so many of us did disconnect from our body, because what was happening to our body was too painful, it was too overwhelming. And so we couldn't be in the body. So we learned to disconnect from it to not feel it. But our body has so much wisdom. And it's telling us stuff all the time, including emotions often first show up as sensations in the body. So when I was disconnected from my body, I would have emotions and sensations that would show up. And the next thing I knew, I was just, I was like, just reacting from it. I was saying something or I was doing something from that place, but I had no idea where it came from. And that's where sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, you went from zero to 60. And no, usually they're not at zero to start with, because we're not connected to the body. We're not tuned into that. And then it looks like we just go off and start reacting. So.
0: I think what you share there is so important, that choice point that all of us have and don't even recognize sometimes, right? Where something big is happening in our environment, whether it's with our families or workplace, whatever it might be. And because of our own limitations, our own trauma, we either react to it and want to shut it down, like you said, or we check out. And both of those choices have ramifications, right? Especially when you have people around you that you love and care about. And it sounded like through at least the beginning of your ayahuasca experience, you develop more capacity to be present to it and to potentially be more neutral in it, which I know is that's an ongoing process for all of us. But to me, what's so significant about that is just like trauma can be intergenerational, then healing can be intergenerational too. And imagine as a parent, as you can be with your children when they are in a dysregulated state, a positive impact that has on the people around us is so important. It ties in so well with this theme of your work, right? As you heal yourself, you heal your family, you heal your community. That ripple effect of that healing is so important and can be so immediate too, which is really fascinating.
1: Can I share really quickly an analogy that was given to me by an elder from my home community before he passed? He didn't know me very well, but he must have known my family somehow. I didn't grow up in Red Lake. I was born near the Red Lake Reservation. And then when I was around two, two and a half, we moved so that my dad could go to school on the GI Bill. But somehow this elder and I connected. And I went to a powwow up in Red Lake to to visit with him. And out of nowhere, he starts telling me family systems are like a mobile. Each family member has a role to play. And as long as they play the role within the family, there's a balance. Even if it's not healthy, the family sort of knows what to expect and there's not a lot of turbulence necessarily. But he said, when somebody tries to get out of their role and do something different, it creates an imbalance in the family. And unconsciously, everyone in the family tries to get this person to get with it again because it's really uncomfortable for the family. But he said, if you can maintain that, then the rest of the family system has to adjust to the new dynamic. And I remember at the time thinking, what is he talking about? I had no idea what he was talking about because I didn't have a lot of the context that I have now. But as I've continued to learn and grow and heal myself, it was a really lonely, hard place Mm -hmm. to be the first one in my family to start doing this healing work. Like my siblings and my parents weren't, my partner really wasn't. So it was a really hard and lonely place to be, but I felt so convicted of it because I knew how painful growing up in that trauma had been for me. I didn't want that for my kids. So initially my kids were really the motivator for my healing journey. And I tell people now, whatever you have to use as motivation to start, use that. But what I've come to understand is that I'm enough to do this healing journey. And then my children benefit and my fam- the rest of my family benefits and my friends benefit and the people I work with benefit, right? So it's, be- it's become over time a shift in understanding that I'm worth it, but it started out as wanting to be the best person I could be for my children. So that really was my experience as I stayed that path and kept healing and integrating and learning and growing the rest of my family had to sort of change and adjust, you know, Susan was no longer going to be the one who always came in and was the peacemaker. And I started setting boundaries and holding to the boundaries, which was really new and really upsetting to certain people in my family. So I was really uncomfortable for them at first, and then there's been a shift. So a lot of these things that used to be hard We have some new dynamics in our family that are healthier, and we have new processes to be able to talk about some of these things. This is another important thing that I learned from a therapist that really helped me as a mother, and it helps me in my relationships, because... Once I learned about ACEs and trauma and how it gets passed on, I sort of had this belief, I got to get it right all the time. I'm going to mess up my kids, right? And that's unrealistic. We're human. We cannot be perfect in this. And so this therapist said to me, ruptures in relationships will happen. What's important is the repair. How do you make the repair? And so as I've been doing this work and as my immediate family, my extended family has gotten healthier, we have found new ways and healthier ways to create repair instead of just ignoring what happened or pretending like it didn't happen or staying mad at each other for like a week. We now have more processes to be able to talk through those things and make those repairs so that our relationships are actually stronger when conflict happens, as opposed to perpetuating those traumas within our family and across the generation.
0: That's fascinating. The image I got as I was hearing you speak was this giant puzzle with all these pieces and you as the individual, when you start to shift the shape or the way of being of your own puzzle piece, the friction that you automatically start to encounter around you, but through your own commitment and resilience, you do force the entire picture to shift, or at least the individual pieces within the picture to shift. And that image is so compelling. And I really acknowledge you for your courage to do that. I think being the first in a family system to go through those changes is certainly hard, but it's so incredibly worthwhile.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I feel like it's also important to remember that no matter what is happening, the dynamics within the family, we always have agency somewhere. Our agency is never in controlling how others show up or what they do, right? But it is in how I show up, what I do. But as long as we don't have that awareness and we stay in those automatic responses, then our power and our agency goes out the window.
0: Well said. So you're actually getting your doctorate now in this field of the potential of using psychedelics to heal communities, your own community, for example. And I'm just curious, like, what do you see there as the potential of that work as well as some of the limitations? Yeah,
1: So maybe I'll start with some of the limitations and some of the limitations that we're already starting to come up against are these beliefs around psychedelics are drugs. And in our communities, drugs have caused a lot of harm, whether you're talking about alcohol, whether you're talking about opioids, whether you're talking about methamphetamines. And so because psychedelics sort of get lumped in with that, people are really hesitant. They're like, Oh, no, we don't need more drugs in our community. So part of it is teasing apart and helping people to understand that they are not like other substances that have been used and abused, not only in our communities, but other communities as well. They're one of the few drugs that don't have those addictive properties. And there is a ton of healing potential within the psychedelic substances, whether you're talking about plant medicines or whether you're talking about, you know, synthetic substances like LSD and MDMA and some of those others. So helping our communities to understand that psychedelics don't fit into the traditional category of quote unquote drugs in our communities. And then also there's some resistance that we're getting because culture and so many of our practices, there was this attempt through assimilation to stop those practices There's this clinging to some of our practices and ceremonies. It's sort of like we have our ways. We don't need others. We have our thing. And yes, our practices and our ceremonies are really helpful and they're incredibly powerful. But there's some additional pieces in that. Not everybody in our communities has access to the ceremonies anymore because of how historical trauma happened and a lot of those practices didn't get passed down to the same degree that they would have without that happening. So we have fewer medicine people and practitioners, you know, people who run these ceremonies, you also have unfortunately, some folks who have their own unresolved stuff that are running these ceremonies that are perpetuating harm in our community, either through abuse or taking advantage of people in our community. And in addition, because of the churches, we have some people in our communities that won't do anything related to our culture because the church said it's bad and evil and wrong. So you have all of these dynamics that are playing out. There are people who cannot access these ceremonies and people who will not access our traditional ceremonies. And if people had enough access and they were sufficient, we wouldn't struggle with the things that we continue to struggle with in our communities. As we've talked about earlier, there's this compounding of trauma that can happen. The ancestral trauma, the intergenerational, how those patterns get passed down, our traumas that happen in our lifetime, the collective traumas and societal trauma. So there's all of this compounding of trauma over time. And so the generations now carry more trauma than the previous generations, because the many of the previous generations did not have the opportunities to heal, so those traumas got passed down. So, we have this compounding effect of trauma, we have less access to our own ceremonies, we have abuses happening in some of our ceremonies, and we have people who won't access our ceremonies. And so, as I have been working with these medicines and experienced healing myself, I feel like there is a real opportunity for the use of psychedelics to help be a catalyst in the healing for our people. We've talked about how in the medicine, I was able to see and experience some of the ancestral trauma that I carry to release some of that as well as some of my own, as well as seeing some of the collective. And so having opportunities in the medicines to work with and navigate and heal and transform those energies is really, really important. Another thing that I'll add is an experience I've had multiple times in the medicine is often where the medicine will help create an embodied knowing. So it shifts something from a head knowing. So for example, in our communities where we say, we're all related, we're all connected, everything is energy. Like I've heard that for most of my life, but up until I felt it in ceremony, it was just a concept in my mind. It was not a felt sense. And once you have a felt sense of something, it allows you to experience it and to have a relationship with it in a whole new way. And so being able to embody some of these practices and ways of knowing that we've talked about a lot in our communities, but because of the unresolved trauma, what we say and what we do doesn't always line up. There's not always an alignment of that. But the plant medicines and the psychedelics can help us to be able to realign what we say and do and what we believe because we then have an embodied experience of that. So mm-hmm. so I think there's an incredible potential to work with and be in relationship with psychedelics for healing in our communities and connecting that to the practices that we already have. It doesn't have to be a this or that. I think this is an opportunity for all communities, not even just indigenous communities, but, but how do we really take what's important You know, the medicines, the practices, the values that we have. And how do we infuse that in the medicine ceremonies themselves? How do we infuse that in the way that we prepare people for the journey? How do we infuse that into how we help people integrate after the journey? Like, there's so much potential to do that. I find it really exciting. I
0: so appreciate your level of awareness and the nuances involved with trying to integrate all of that. I mean, it is a lot to try to juggle as you're working to help facilitate healing within your own communities. And I really appreciate the attention to culture that psychedelics plant medicines have tremendous healing potential, but that really, especially for your community to do that with respect to your culture and your own traditions is really important. I know we've talked about this. As your culture evolves over time, children being born today, you know, are exposed to things that your grandparents and great-grandparents weren't exposed to. It's happening for all of our families. Things are changing. All of our traditions, in some ways, are getting lost And yet I can really appreciate in your community the desire to try to keep that culture and those traditions alive, especially because they were so threatened. And I heard you talk about something I thought was really interesting, the culture police that exist in your community. And I'm sure that exists in some form in all different communities. Would you speak to that? And you mentioned the values that are part of your tradition and how you see those being able to be honored, but perhaps in new ways in your culture.
1: Yeah. So the term culture police in our communities has really come to mean those folks who know the one right way to do whatever ceremony or practice it is. So even just thinking about like as Anishinaabe people, Anishinaabe people reside in parts of Canada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, eastern North Dakota and beyond. But where most of our reservations and homelands are is in the Midwest. And even the difference between, for example, language, there's a different dialect in the community of Ponima in the Red Lake Nation where I'm from, compared to a community on the Leech Lake Reservation or the Mille Lacs Reservation. So we have not only different dialects and language, we use language, but also the way that we do ceremonies, there are nuances within that. So the challenge is, is that with the culture police, it's like, this is the right way. If you don't do it this way, you're doing it wrong. And if you're doing it wrong, there's like the shaming that happens when you do it wrong unfortunately a lot of our people again because of historical trauma maybe haven't had the opportunities to do ceremonies very often maybe don't know what they should bring or what they should wear or what they should do when they're in ceremony and so there's a lot of unknowns there and when the culture police enforce culture it's done in a shaming way in a way that then makes it so that Fewer of our people actually want to go because they're afraid they're going to do it wrong and they're afraid they're going to be shamed for it. And so when I think about, like as Anishinaabe people, we have what's called seven grandfather teachings, these seven values that are supposed to permeate everything that we do. And so the values are love, humility, respect, courage, bravery, truth, honesty. And so when I think about culture and how culture is shared as Anishinaabe people, it should be shared in a loving way. It was shared in a loving way. If somebody did something wrong, you know, somebody would come alongside them and they would maybe explain why we did what we did or what you could do differently next time. There was a lot of mentoring that happened. Again, when we talk about what we don't heal, we perpetuate that pedagogy of the oppressed, right? So much shaming that happened in the boarding schools now shows up as shaming of our own people when we're trying to reconnect to cultural activities. And so as I think about quote unquote culture, I don't necessarily think of culture as being the individual activities themselves. Cultures are made up of these activities. But as I think about being an Anishinaabe woman, the big C culture in it really to me is those values. Am I doing what I'm doing in those values of love, respect, humility, courage, bravery, if I'm doing whatever I'm doing in those values, to me, it's Anishinaabe. And I, again, I think this is connected to that historical trauma. There's almost like this belief that culture, our culture is stagnant, but our culture was never stagnant. You know, things were always moving and changing and transitioning and our people thrived because we had the ability to change and adapt with it. So based in the foundations of those values, we could change and adapt to any situation and thrive with those values.
0: Wow, I really appreciate that. And I think you've heard it described as it's not what you do, it's how you do it, right? And yeah to me when i hear you share that i can so appreciate the desire for especially the elders in your community to want to keep those traditions alive and as pure as possible and yet out of the fear i think of losing those right they can be a little harsh perhaps in how they're communicating that to the newer people coming right. in trying right. to experiencing it in that in that new way and i think what's so relevant about that is as I think about how psychedelics and plant medicines are now being integrated into our larger community, our mixed community, right? I think that's that same desire to try to maintain tradition is there. And that there's also fear that that's going to get lost, you know, Mm -hmm. as psychedelics go mainstream and clinics open. I really appreciate people's concern about that. And I think there is a lot of wisdom and tradition that we want to honor and maintain as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But I really appreciate the essence of what you said, because it's not what we do, it's how we do it. And if we can maintain the values that Mm -hmm. were originally imbued in those cultural traditions, especially around plant medicines and psychedelics, if those values could be carried into perhaps these new models and ways of doing things, but ultimately that will be retained and hopefully the impact of that will also be really positive and profound.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think in the larger society, there are all sorts of values that we have, but we don't tend to talk about them. We don't make it really clear. They're all, you know, under the surface values. And yet, if we want to do this work really well, if we want to create these healing spaces in a really good way... It has to be grounded in something so to me that's where grounding it in those values and articulating the values being really clear about the values and when i think about the values like the anishinaabe values it's they're very heart-centered you mm-hmm. know they're grounded in things mm-hmm. like love and respect and courage those are heart-centered values and so it's grounded in the heart and everything emanates from there so i feel like if we can get those pieces right everything else flow from that but i think one of the challenges in our current society is we're so mind heavy and my belief has come to be that we're so mind heavy because we are so traumatized we tend to be collectively disconnected from our bodies disconnected from our hearts disconnected from our spirit so what part of us you know as indigenous people we believe we're spirit first in human bodies having human thoughts and human emotions but if we're shut down from our spirit from our body from our hearts, the only thing that we count on or rely on is the mind. And the mind not working in a balanced way with the other parts of who we are can really lead us astray. Right? It's only taking in a really small amount of information and it's trying to make sense of this big complex world with really limited data and input. And that creates and I think generates a lot of anxiety in us, which then creates the need to control. And so, yeah, I I think the more that we can drop into the heart, reconnecting to the spirit and really grounding in those values, the rest sort of naturally comes from that.
0: Beautifully said. I think my final question, I know it's a big question and probably don't really have time to do it justice, but what's your hope in terms of the healing opportunities within your communities with psychedelics? I think you mentioned that you would had some conversations with MAPS and that there might be some opportunity for some people in your community to get that kind of training. What would you love to see happen in the next, say, five years if you had your way and you could shepherd things into your community in a way that was really useful?
1: So yeah, there's a group of us that is looking to get trained through MAPS and MAPS has been wonderful. They they are open to bringing a group of us in and being able to support us financially to do that. And that's a process, you know, the MAPS training is it's about a nine month process. So we have to make sure that we're finding the right people who are going to be committed to completing the whole training. And there's like a small handful of us that have been having conversations. And it, there's this question about the way that psychedelics is being used in mainstream it is very much like one-on-one in a therapeutic setting and you know I've gone to different conferences and things like that where they'll say like what has to be done in a therapeutic setting with the counselor but you know like really putting these tight parameters on it and yet there are folks in our community that won't see a therapist there are folks in our community that that model is not going to resonate for a whole host of reasons including the fact that Even though we might not have an alignment yet in what we say and what we do around understanding the interconnection of everything, with that interconnection of everything and that basic understanding, the sense of this is only done at an individual level doesn't resonate. There's this desire in our communities and the people that we're talking to, how do we expand this so that there are opportunities for a whole family to experience healing in a psychedelic setting, or maybe key community members or community members from like within a ceremony. And then what does that integration process look like afterwards, where there's this continued and ongoing support of those individuals that go through as a collective. So I think there's an opportunity to expand that. And it's sort of exciting. I know there's some research that's been, I can't remember the researcher's name, but there's some research being done in Canada with MDMA and couples now. And I think MAPS is starting to look at couples and things like that, right? So I think within our Indigenous communities, being able to create more opportunities more spaces for groups to go through. I would love to see, and this is a dream, but I would love to see like a whole tribal council go through a process together, right? So as you think about like the key decision makers in our communities, it is this piece around both the individual healing, but also this collective. So I would love to see that. I also would love to see tribes beginning to pool resources and time to push back against psychedelics being illegal and us not being able to use them in our communities. So as sovereign nations within the United States, we really should have the opportunity to say, These are the practices we want to use for healing and the federal government and the state government and the county governments don't and shouldn't have anything to say about that. So there's a lot of other ways that tribes have banded together to promote something for the collective. As you think about indigenous communities, I would love to see over the next couple of years, there beginning to be momentum of tribes coming together to push back and say, you know what? No, we want to use these medicines to help heal and we're going to.
0: Beautiful. And to have, as you said, your own sovereign autonomy over that, to be able to make those right. decisions for your community, I imagine would be healing in and of itself, right? Absolutely. It would be an important part of the process to actually go back and heal some of the trauma that was caused from not having that sovereignty. You know, centuries. Right. right. Brilliant. Well, before we wrap, would you please tell the audience about your podcast? It's absolutely beautiful. And I highly recommend anyone listening, go check it out. I think for indigenous people, it's got to be such a profound resource for them to better understand the lineage of what you've been through and your own healing experiences within your culture. But I think even for non indigenous people, there's a lot of wisdom there that people would find relevant to their own experience.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate this. So the, the podcast is called Remembering Resilience. And it emerged out of the work that I was doing with MCCC and the Tribal Near Sciences and Community Wisdom Project. So You know, as we were starting to talk in our communities about ACEs and historical trauma and epigenetics, all of this, there was a woman who worked at the radio station in White Earth who was like, we should get this on the radio. And I was like, let's do that. Well, then some things happened and we weren't able to create radio spots, but instead we did podcasts with it. So we are just getting ready to record season three, which we're really excited about. Remembering Resilience podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple Music, Audible, iTunes, I think it's on almost every major platform now. It took a while to sort of get it out there on all the platforms, but it's been really wonderful to hear the resonance within our communities. What we've done the last two seasons, we create an opportunity for people to join in conversation, to talk about each episode and what resonated, and just having Indigenous people being able to see their own experiences reflected and to better understand what's driving those patterns and those cycles either within their own life or their families or communities it's been really healing for our communities and we've had a lot of non-native people join too who work with tribal communities and it helps them to understand how they can show up better in their work and to understand the dynamics that are happening in the community and the historical context of those so yeah we're really excited about it's so great it
0: really is and that's wonderful to hear that there's a lot of conversations coming out of listening to the podcast too. And although your community's experiences are unique, I think there's a lot of lessons and wisdom there that would be relevant for a, a lot of people in different communities. So I really appreciate the incredible work you've done through that podcast. Thanks for sharing. And for people who want to follow you or perhaps seek you out, I know you do some amazing consulting work too. Where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So I am on LinkedIn. I'm trying to do a better job of going in and checking that regularly. I'm on Facebook, but probably the best way to reach me would be email. So my email is beau0181 at -um UMN, like University of Minnesota, umn.edu. So that's probably the best way to reach me.
0: Lovely. We'll make sure that's in the liner notes and on the website thank too. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Well, Susan, I believe the word for thank you in your language is miigwech. So miigwech, I want to thank you very much for being here today. It's so touching to hear about your healing journey and how that's continuing to support the healing within your community. I really am so honored to have you here as a guest and really appreciate you sharing your experience. Thank you so much.
1: To you for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.